Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. Our first guest in 2019 is Jeremy Plum. Jeremy is the Director of Production Science at Proof Cultivar, one of the most technologically advanced cannabis cultivation facilities in all of North America. At Proof, Jeremy combines decades of cannabis horticulture experience with cutting-edge technology to deliver previously unattainable consistency in both product quality and consumer effect. Prior to his leadership at Proof, Jeremy was a co-founder of Pharma, recently acclaimed by Rolling Stone as one of Oregon's top dispensaries. Jeremy has served as a cannabis consultant to Israel Medical Cannabis Researchers as a cannabis policy advisor for U.S. members of Congress. He also serves on the OLCC's Rulemaking Advisory Committee. In 2015, Jeremy co-founded Cultivation Classic, Oregon's leading craft cannabis competition. He serves on the Technical Advisory Board of the Resource Innovation Institute and is the co-founder of the Open Cannabis Project. He lives in Portland, Oregon with his border collie Lucy and when he can, finds few greater joys than sailing on the mighty Columbia River. I had a ton of questions for Jeremy after hearing him speak at numerous events like Photo X, Emerald Cup, and the Cultivation Classic. In this podcast, though, Jeremy really shares his background and passion for cannabis as medicine. At the end of the podcast, you'll hear some of the questions I had for Jeremy for a follow-up podcast, but please do reach out with any questions you may have, and I'll read my favorites in the next podcast with him. You can email me questions at tad at kisorganics.com or post them on the Instagram post for this podcast. Enjoy. Hey, Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's a joy, Tad. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, well, I met you a couple of years ago now at uh, Photo X, but I'd been aware of you and the work you were doing, but I loved I loved what you talked about on stage. I just I was just sitting there in the audience, totally engaged and nodding my head to just about everything you were saying. So I'm really excited for this opportunity to talk to you. Could you maybe go back and tell us a little bit about yourself so we can let the audience know uh, who you are and what you're up to? Absolutely. Um, thanks for the compliment. I really love that event. That um, It's great to have a moment with you. Um, a little bit about my background is that I've really always been involved with this amazing plant. And doing my best to serve what I believe are its you know, incre- incredibly growing and exciting expressions in the world. But, um, of course, things are changing fast, so there's a lot of fronts that I'm working on. Um, but really, I started um, in Sonoma County and really had a lot of time in what we sort of affectionately thought was the southern tip of the Emerald Triangle. Um, but that w- I was surrounded by really experienced craft cannabis growers and was lucky when I was 15 after reading The Emperor Wears No Clothes to be able to reach out to Chris Conrad and Mickey Norris and sort of say, hey, I'm really excited about the work you guys are doing, and to be taken in under their wing for a while. Um, I got to go in Oakland and sort of spend time with Chris, especially as he was doing a lot of different advocacy work. This is pre-Prop 215 in the Bay Area, and there was just this hotbed of a lot of the people who are sort of most fundamental in the ideation around medical cannabis movement and just the modern hemp and cannabis movement in general. Um, but one of the first projects I was involved with was actually Mickey's project, where she had um, these sort of A-frame signs with big posters about shattered lives and people's lives that had been uh, negatively affected by the drug war. 
and then there was these anecdotes and we would tour around and take them to various places like college campuses and sort of tell these stories of shattered lives and illustrate the um, just painful outcomes of the drug war. During that time was when I got really turned on to the medical movement in earnest, became aware of people like Brownie Mary and Dennis Perone a little bit later, but earlier became aware of a clinic in Santa Cruz called Women Advocates for Medical Marijuana, or WAM. And this was really a team that I believe Rick Doblin from MAPS helped to connect to Israeli researchers after um, the government sort of was shutting down their efforts. But they were exclusively devoted to cancer and AIDS patients and to providing medical cannabis. At that time in the day, which is sort of early 90s, there was, um, of course, this really horrible fallout with the AIDS crisis and watching sort of what looked like scenes from The Walking Dead at points um, in places like the Tenderloin in San Francisco, um, you would see AIDS patients on the street with wasting syndrome really just experiencing unbelievably low quality of life. And then in their community, you would see kind of a completely different story happening where people's quality of life was really clearly improved by their reliance on cannabis and having it administered in a consistent way. So that was really where the light bulb was going off and then eventually being exposed to like Dennis Perone's Compassionate Buyers Club and um, just that whole movement. Um, so as I became aware that the properties in cannabis that helped me to deal with pretty high levels of anxiety when I was young and felt like a far more creative and productive alternative to alcohol consumption, and being in Sonoma County, which is also the wine country, and I was surrounded by heavy alcoholism and had some of that in my family as well. And so cannabis just felt like a healthful and exciting alternative. But little did I know it would become, you know, really a, a life's work and something that I increasingly feel can really improve the quality of life for a huge array of people around the world as we're all working on this endeavor. But um, anyways, I moved from the Bay Area up to um, Portland in 2000. So Portland, Oregon is where I've been ever since. And I got involved immediately with the medical marijuana program here. And I'd already had, you know, a lot of years experience, almost 15 years experience in the Bay before coming up, but then um, really became involved with a lot of patients. And in the work with patients over time, I got better at sort of gathering cultivars from around the world and really um, finding different sorts of um, medicine and being able to administer that effectively through my gardens and a small network was really the foundation of my work in Oregon. Over time, I found some incredible patients who had benefit and experienced pretty good outcomes by being able to work with them. And ultimately, I found their support um, was able to help me eventually become involved in the dispensary program. Um, when we became aware of the fact that there was going to be a dispensary program um, in Oregon, it was clear that actually I didn't have the resources or ability to kind of pursue that sort of opportunity without partners. But one patient in particular, this amazing man named Steve Bennett, um, really just got behind my work and let me use a, a lot of resources um, really to be able to categorize chemovars effectively. Um, at the time when I was actually a pre-dispensary program in Oregon as a medical grower, there were very few people pursuing chemical inventory of their product. And I knew that there was clearly a wide spread of different outcomes 
in the work I'd been doing with patients and was desperate to kind of categorize the qualitative attributes of these plants. I was very fortunate that a good friend, Rich Cromlin, who goes by one eye and is a breeder up here, he's associated with dog walker strain and others, um, introduced me to a man named Pat Marshall. Pat Marshall was the leading chemist at Sunrise Analytical. Looking back, I now believe that Pat Marshall was likely one of the most important cannabis chemists in the country because he'd been going since the mid-90s. And he was a really senior scientist who had been the top scientist in city of Portland's water quality control. And so he was a master of gas chromatography and he was a patient activist. So he was really turned on to the idea that um, cannabis was helping people. And so he worked to kind of crack the matrix um, in a sort of solo effort, looking very little outside of his own work and in a disciplined way pursued um, sort of mapping all of this and then would be able to produce um, analytical results that had 64 compounds. So seeing this level of chemical diversity um, produced by a really rigorous scientist in a consistent fashion uh, was a huge transformation in my work. And my partner, Steve, really helped me to, in addition to inventorying all of my own cultivars, even um, we paid for lab results for other people's cultivars to start to kind of what I, I'm going to borrow some language from a friend, Dr. Mark Lewis. Um, I was unintentionally beginning a survey of the chemoscape in Oregon and trying to find what were the most useful properties and um, in a sense, how did those combine with my production environment? One of the shocking discoveries that happened first when I started getting all these lab results was that essentially when I gave four skillful producers the exact same genotype or the exact same cutting taken from a mother plant that I provided, after the course of growing them out and going to Pat's lab and testing them um, thoroughly and even um, retesting them, we were able to validate that there was a huge range of chemo chemical diversity from the exact same plant. So in one sample, there was like 28, uh, 28 point something milligrams per gram of beta-myrcene. In another, there was two, and those two plants were clearly going to have very different outcomes for patients and um, have different therapeutic properties. So then I really keyed into the fact that the production environment was a huge variable, that the phenotypic diversity of cannabis, or the interaction between genes and the environment, um, as a producer was really as important to me as the actual genotype or the genetic material of the plant. So I began creating quadrants. I had, at the time, three different medical gardens I was associated with and would divide them into quadrants where I would be trialing different sort of media, different lighting solutions, different environmental conditions, and producing analytical results. Additionally, I've always been involved with hybridization. You know, and I say that I, you know, it, it was specifically not intentional plant breeding, um, I, I did not have known traits that I was trying to kind of advance in the early days, um, but had been on a team of friends that had produced cultivars that were pretty famous in Portland in the early 2000s. But really, um, I was able to start to kind of look at all of this genetic diversity and see that in addition to the variables of the environment, that the genes really mattered as well, and that both of those have become you know, th this long-term exploration that I'm just really grateful to have had 
with the resources and time and partners to be able to work with, all in the hopes of eventually being able to have a spectrum of products that really are targeted to particular patient outcomes. Of course, many people are talking in those terms now, but I had about eight years of data prior to the advent of like analytical testing as a result of compliance testing in the regulated cannabis industry and had worked with so many diverse environments that there really was a lot of insight about what these environments and the role that um, things like what kind of were you using mineral salt fertilizers or were you using you know, living organic soil eventually we're using a variety of different organic inputs are you running you know high VPD or low VPD strategies um, do you have high pressure sodiums or in the old days were you flowering under even metal halides and, and looking at all of these variables I, I sort of had low level observational study data that was able to help me to start to key into trends where I could optimize the expression of cannabinoids and terpenoids. Um, what was really exciting was over the course of time, using this kind of feedback, I was able as a producer to really become um, much more sophisticated in harnessing high levels. So I know that I, there was a group of us that were growing a dog walker, for example, and I think only about five of us had that plant for many years. And it was easily one of the most important therapeutic plants that we were working with, especially for oncology patients, people with chronic pain, and people who needed really strong effect and were looking for kind of relaxing, calming effects. I noticed that as I was sort of competing with the other producers who are our friends, I mean, I definitely was hitting extreme levels and was able to produce like the most terpenes I've ever seen in a lab result. And um, that was all through the course of kind of getting insights in the observational studies and optimizing the production environment. Um, of course, in those variables, you mentioned photo X, one of the things that stood out after um, nutrition environment that was probably the most singular important variable was lighting and the quality of lighting. So one, one of the things that I was able to start to experiment with was using the very first generation of LEDs that were available with custom spectrums. And I ordered these bars that would have like deep purples and violet lights. Um, and I witnessed a complete transformation in the morphology as I used different lighting spectra and lighting intensity. And so the evolution of lighting, I've really ridden all the way from like, there was literally mercury vapor bulbs um, and, you know, that turned into metal halides and fluorescent lights. Um, and then later single-ended uh, HPS lights and then double-ended. But one thing I noticed is when the lights shifted from single-ended HPS to double-ended HPS, um, suddenly there was an explosion and kind of more resinous cannabis and higher potency cannabis. Um, so it was very clear that the lighting was, you know, a giant differentiating factor and producers who didn't have access to the HVAC equipment or the ceiling height or the various um, things that required um, double-ended HPS to perform well simply had a competitive advantage that was massive. Um, I, I feel that same kind of theme is happening with LEDs, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, but that ultimately LEDs have provided a massive competitive advantage for those who can understand how to unlock uh, the power of using targeted wavelength and much more intense lighting and much more consistent lighting and uh, dimmable lighting. 
as well as directional lighting. I mean, it's just full of advantages. But in any case, all of this put in, into motion allowed for me to create a range of products that I felt stood out and were really special. And I was getting that feedback from patients that I was working with. That was the genesis of the um, ideas behind the dispensary I co-founded with my partner, Sam Haywood, called Pharma. Pharma is a dispensary in Portland, uh, spelled with an S. And the idea was, you know, we're really excited about whole plant cannabis therapeutic products. We want to be sophisticated in representing and curating those products. And really took almost all of my sort of initial vision for how that product mix should be curated um, based on the early research of Dr. Ethan Russo. I've also traveled to Israel and met chemists like Lumir and spent time with Professor Mashulam and a variety of other people, but it was really Ethan Russo who I think gave me the tools to understand that in that first paper, the Taming THC paper I'd read, there was 15 compounds he'd looked at and was giving them a particular value and that we wanted to be able to curate from that perspective as opposed to a kind of pseudoscience indica and sativa perspective or um, a lot of the other language and misnomers that came along with a prohibition era and cannabis culture. Um, so we, for example, tested everything at the dispensary through one lab, through Sunrise Analytical. I actually produced all 24 cultivars that we had for roughly the first year and a half um, while we were still a medical dispensary, um, but I was unable to continue to keep up once we became a adult use dispensary. Um, so we then had to bring in a lot of different producers. But during that first year and a half, it felt like something magical happened where we were the only dispensary in the world at the time to post terpene data and to both feature overall terpene output as well as specific terpene content. And I came up with an algorithm that essentially was able to sort out what all consumers were coming in with, which was this notion of indica and sativa, and being able to sort of put on a spectrum with six points, relaxing and calming effects on one side, focusing and euphoric effects on the other, with a weak, medium, and strong uh, gradation for each. Of course, this is as much art as science, because the science of looking at the ensemble or entourage effect at the time and even now is, of course, uh, far behind where we ideally want it to be. Uh, we can talk in some depth, especially with new publications by Dr. Russo and others, about the individual components and some of the drug interactions, but the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic insights that are still elusive I, I, that we need to understand the, the really complicated effects with these whole plants um, is simply not mature yet, but it felt important to sort of draw a line in the sand and say, um, the prohibition era is coming to an end and it's time to really um, honor and respect this plant in the way that we can sort of like share the diversity and nuance of traits and without making it a comparison to alcohol, look a bit like other craft industries and, and be able to sort of make it more useful to patients. But further, we insisted that everybody we worked with, and I was really at the lead of this in the beginning, um, became highly trained and professional in representing a science-based vision of how to apply cannabis therapeutics and work with products like RSO 
And especially with people who are, you know, late stage oncology or end of life care or seizure disorders or some of the most important uh, kinds of patients we were serving. And I think it was just a miracle that um, I met Sam Haywood, who had the unbelievable business acumen and marketing ideas and strategies to be able to kind of help pharma to bloom in this way that became a really unique resource. And we really attracted a lot of attention, had national and international media, had just a lot of um, support for this model. And we worked our faces off. I literally was working seven days a week. I would often do uh, more than 12 hours a day. There were many 16-hour days back to back. I would be on my feet the whole time. And um, the, eventually that sort of led to kind of burnout around trying to operate gardens and work with patients and operate the dispensary and being a tiny team. And so Sam really, um, with the rest of the pharma team, kind of continued operations with pharma well, I took some reflective time and worked to establish a garden that would be a bigger scale garden. Um, of course, you know, Ted, I, I love your podcast. I'm so grateful to be on because one of the things that you have done is help to really emphasize and underline the importance of ecological production and sophisticated perspectives around organic crop production. And that's something that's really, really near and dear to my heart. I feel that if at scale, this whole industry employed the kinds of practices that you espouse and many people on your show have brought forward, you know, ultimately, we'd take a bite out of climate change. We'd take um, all kinds of uh, sort of sequestering of atmospheric carbon practices into motion that would even further influence agriculture and horticulture on the whole. Um, and, you know, there's just so many wonderful aspects uh, to this notion that regenerative farming is really going to make a huge contribution to the quality of life on the planet. And I'm really behind that. But I also know there, there's another priority that has probably even become more important for my personal work. As I've gone down this path, I really want to be able to create targeted, consistent chemo chemical varieties that are reliable for patients and that illustrate um, a path towards being able to have a long-term relationship with whole plant-derived phytochemistry and not simply, you know, leave the sort of really serious patients um, in the hands of pharmaceutical companies that are developing, you know, through clinical trial work, maybe sort of uh, single varieties of cannabis chemistry and, and trying to provide, even from a synthetic cannabinoid perspective, you know, totally consistent compounds but that are not being uh, produced from a plant or are being greatly refined after being repro reproduced from a plant because I have always had and even more so now than ever have a, a just unshakable belief that there is wisdom in a plant that is sort of more than we can quantify with an analytical testing result and certainly at the resolution of analytical testing we're at now um, and that there is also a folk medicine revolution aspect to relying on whole plants, which means that really we're in a situation where people internationally can grow plants and take care of their well-being and take care of their family and loved ones and communities' well-being with plants and not be entirely reliant on pharmaceutical um, companies to be able to provide that relief, but that we have to become very mature quickly to be able to command some part of the market share and to inspire and illustrate a path forward where people can continue to relate with this ancient plant 
in a really meaningful way and in modern times find the kinds of health benefits they would expect to find from even pharmaceutical drugs but without having to go through that and entire part of um, the, uh, I guess, that part of the economy. So that said, I've, I've become increasingly focused on targeted chemovars. So I was trying to build a farm. It was going to be called Nucleus Nurseries. It would essentially balance the ecological crop production methods with um, targeted chemo ch chemical varieties. So that actually, after raising a, a lot of money, quite a lot of money, a big team and being a CEO and a year and a half of development, that effort was going to fruit in a campus called the O-Hub, which is the Oregon uh, science and research campus that uh, Phylos Bioscience, Cascadia Analytics, um, and a few other partners were going to have on some land south of town. But unfortunately, or actually in hindsight, very fortunately, uh, shortly before Trump got elected, when uh, it was clear that things were starting to go away from an Obama era into uh, an era that looked less supportive of the cannabis economy to flourish. Um, I, I sort of had to deal with dissolving a company because the landlords and the investors started getting cold feet and things got shaky. And, and so really for about eight to nine months, I ended up having to dissolve Nucleus Nurseries. And this was a really hard time for me because I'd worked with people from around the world to create what I felt would be the most ecological production environment that had ever happened. We were talking about like 12 acres of solar panels to run a all LED, um, super high-tech glass house that was based on Dutch greenhouse design that was um, had a variety of considerations, epic scale rainwater catchment and uh, regenerative living soil program and a sort of food forest and polyculture landscape that was featured. And anyways, there was this whole vision that was very compelling and I had completely bought in, but after it had to be dissolved, actually that was the best thing that ever could have happened to me because that effort wouldn't have been able to survive in the Oregon market as the market has shaken out with massive overproduction. And um, really as a producer, your survival depends on being able to access shelf space and retail. Um, so I became a consultant for a period of time. And my partner, Sam, and I founded a company called Agonist Consulting. Agonist then engaged with um, the now governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy. And um, I became involved in sort of uh, emerging regulatory markets after having had paid dues already in the Oregon market, which I didn't mention. I was on the OLCC, which is the Oregon Liquor and Control Commission, uh, rulemaking advisory committee. I worked with the governor, worked with the mayor, I worked with uh, members of Congress. I worked with uh, Congressman Earl Blumenauer and, and actually co-founded the very first uh, regenerative cannabis event uh, with Congressman Earl Blumenauer and in partnership with the Willamette Week um, started an event that was really meant to support sort of the kinds of insights that are what you're curating on your show. And um, that's actually become the largest craft cannabis event in Oregon and is really doing some exciting things I'd like to talk more about, but uh, I'll save that for another subject. Um, but I had a lot of experience with sort of working to try to find a way to bring the best ethics and practices forward for this emerging industry that I cared so much about 
and to also try to protect the craft producers and the people who were clearly um, in a position that looked like they were going to be left behind. Um, so there was a lot of battles and some of that got played out in the consultancy. But then I landed a client that is called Groundworks Industries that owns Proof Cultivar. And this was the most fateful moment in my story because really Proof Cultivar is a very high-tech facility in Northeast Portland. It's all controlled environment, um, sort of precision ag modeled um, environments. It has 16 different chambers that are tightly controlled and that allow for my original work back to testing environmental strategies and huge amounts of genetic diversity and working with hybridization to really do this work at scale in a mature way. And it's really just been a dream come true where rather than having to manage investor expectations, now there's people who are really sophisticated at that, that they can deal with that task. And rather than having to do all these other things that I had to do as a CEO for Nucleus, I found a team that was really strong and able to support me to do what I most wanted to do, which was to go back to solve the problem I saw at Pharma, which was there is a huge amount of product consistency issues in the market. The product variability that I worked with at the time would mean that if I was working with a patient and they found just some miraculous curative relationship with a very particular chemovar, um, and really whether they were using flour or concentrate, um, if they were to come back a month later, it was almost in inconceivable that even if we had the exact same chemovar, or rather the same flower, it was going to feature the same chemistry. Um, we just saw huge continuing diversity in the expression of cannabis, and I really wanted to be able to provision patients with something that was more consistent and closer to being research grade, because to me, this is the critical line in the sand we have to cross to enter into a more mature relationship with the patients that we seek to serve. Um, it's to be able to consistently produce a diversity of phytochemistry that's maximally useful and therapeutic and, and life-changing. So I've been working on that project at Proof. It's almost been two years now. Um, and I've finally produced some really great results. I mean, it's just amazing what we're doing in this facility where I've founded a team called Innovation Lab, and there are three main focuses in my research and effort at this point to make this research great output. And I think that producers everywhere would be wise to be thinking about these variables above many others. But the first variable is to be able to do a phenotype discovery at scale, to be able to audition a huge amount of genetic diversity knowing how diverse cannabis is as being the most outbred plant in history, um, being able to accommodate the unique needs of all these different plants, but to just audition um, in lots of a thousand, all of these different seeds that ultimately um, we're looking at from high level resolution genomic science, like 50,000 genotype SNPs for every plant, um, a machine learning platform called Proof OS that I've designed with a team it's really mature data science team from Big Ag that's helped me to create an environmental control system that essentially has sensor arrays in every environment and that's tracking all factors related to plant growth in a pretty dense um, sensor array that gives really um, clear visibility to real-time um, environmental experience, uh, trending data, 
and where the machine learning comes in is to correlate um, all the way between genotype to chemotype these interactions between our cultural practices and all of the environmental inputs. So taking my early low throughput chemical uh, or phenotyping or low throughput phenotyping into a more high throughput phenotyping um, mode has been one of the most exciting things about being at Proofput. So the first discipline is really phenotype discovery and then that builds the palette of traits that we're working on in our breeding work. And we have a variety of partners that we're working with, but Phylos Bioscience is the most important one for the phenotype discovery work. And um, we're participating in a breeders innovation network that they've helped to facilitate. I think is a really exciting collaborative approach um, with a lot of ethics to kind of build unbelievable new plant stock and both from like agronomic perspectives and chemotypic perspectives. So the second discipline that is um, a core focus for the innovation lab is actually called photobiology. And um, you mentioned PhotoX. So one neat little fact is that Nick Clays, who is a founder and CEO, past CEO for uh, Fluence Bioengineering from Austin, Texas, was up visiting me in Portland um, with his partner, Jerry. And one night in front of my driveway in a rental car, you're doing the same thing I often do and kind of rattling on about chemotypes and the importance of that and, and how their technology was intrinsic and in being able to unlock that potential. And Nick founded that night the PhotoX conference, which has also had four years now. And PhotoX became an invite-only, really special conference where brilliant academic resources could come into the cannabis conversation because it was framed as a photobiology conference. So we would actually have like people from very high-level um, universities working on non-cannabis research that was relevant to cannabis, things like looking at carotenoid research, which is a secondary metabolite that's important if you're concerned with nutrition and produce, and how that relates to photobiology or to the effect of light on life, really, but specifically looking at wavelengths and the different functions wavelengths of light are playing as well as the intensity of light and exploring for the first time with these cutting edge fixtures that allow for us to really, in a very precise way, um, use wavelengths um, strategically to optimize plant growth. Of course, NASA has been doing some work on photobiology since I believe the late 60s, early 70s for space travel and there's been all sorts of early um, assumptions like red and blue light are the only two wavelengths that are, um, or that are principally associated with photosynthesis. Um, of course, we've gone to a much more complicated world now where we understand that all spectra of light um, interacts with both plant morphology and phytochemistry production in very interesting ways. So at Proof, we have two different chambers that are being used in a sort of um, single-factor variable research to illustrate. Currently, we're working on the impact of far-red light being included um, in a broad-spectrum fixture versus more of a near-red light. And I know that you were at PhotoX this year, and we had the kind of godfather of photobiology, Bruce Bugby from University of Salt Lake, um, there, and he was presenting his findings about the inclusion of far-red light and this turns out to be a massive variable where he's seen things in basal crops and has reproduced this work with other scientists 
that you could like increase that little bit of far red light and then greatly decrease all of the rest of the PPFD or the photosynthetic photon flux density and still see increased biomass production and increased um, secondary metabolite formation. So that is a big deal because we're always working towards in controlled environments. What does peak efficiency look like? How do we reduce our carbon footprint to the absolute you know, smallest it, it can be? But for those of us who are focusing more in on a kind of biopharmaceutical perspective and needing to have consistent chemistry, um, needing to use these controlled environments is absolutely imperative. Um, the diversity in uh, field-grown cannabis is pretty tremendous, and I, I'm in love with it, and I love to consume it myself and want that to be the lion's share of the industry. But I think there's a very special place for these kind of uh, more targeted solutions that the LEDs can provide. But energy becomes the biggest concern and consideration, which is why I've been on the technical advisory committee for the Resource Innovation Institute. And RAI has been working to really, for the first time, map the footprint of producers and to, to become very um, fine-tooth comb analyzing the producer's inputs, especially related to lighting and HVAC, and um, both for indoor and outdoor producers, as well as greenhouse. And that's, that's been really useful. But bottom line is this new research in photobiology is illustrating a path by which we can use greatly less energy, um, which, of course, LEDs compared to high-intensity discharge features, fixtures um, greatly reduced the overall energy. I mean, something like 50% less energy than the 1,000-watt HPS for our current LED solutions and 40% less energy for the HVAC because we have way less thermal load. And then when you add dimming in, which we use lots of dimming so that we're using targeted UMOL or targeted PPFT for different developmental stages, you see a net reduction around like 70 to 80% beyond a thousand watt HPS. And if you look at our footprint as a facility, um, at proof, we only have about 7,000 square foot of blooming canopy, even though we're in a 60,000 square foot um, controlled environment warehouse with all these chambers, we have a much smaller carbon footprint than all kinds of other um, industrial warehouses that are our neighbors and our close proximity in Northeast Portland. So I'm proud of where we've gotten to, but I, I promise that in the very near future, we're going to go much farther being able to combine with batteries and photovoltaics and even more efficient um, light emitting solutions like the newest generation of Fluence tech, like the Viper 2s and Spider 2s. Um, it gets to a point where you really, really are using nominal amounts of power to be able to provide these rich environments. But that's actually not the most exciting part of photobiology, although it's a really important theme for me and for I know a lot of the people who listen to your work. Um, but probably more exciting is really that we can greatly affect morphology, so the structure of the plant, which when you're dealing with plants that are very compact and very lanky in a spectrum, and uh, you want compact plants in an indoor environment that allow for you to have consistent canopies with as little intervention as possible, lighting can play a very significant role in the structure of plants. Clearly broad spectrum from very early on has resulted in just a level of vigor that is you know, like what you'd expect to see in a sun-grown crop, um, unlike relying exclusively on orange light from HPS fixtures 
which never look quite like sun-grown crops. Um, but the, again, the most exciting piece is the phytochemistry, and it's what's happening at the end stage. So we're seeing really fascinating things with um, using broad-spectrum wavelengths, the inclusion of specifically green light um, to create broad-spectrum and fill out what you're often missing in the other fixtures. And actually, one of the interesting things is we've my best data around terpene production from the early research in all of the garage and basements actually illustrated that ceramic metal halides were producing the best terpenes of any lighting solution that we had access to at the time. But really, ceramic metal halides are kind of an old technology, again, relying on gas-filled bulbs that are really not consistent in their expression. The moment you plug them in, like any other gas-filled bulb, it's already on a gradation where you're losing um, intensity as well as wavelength. And so if you want to, they, further, they're using a lot of electricity and they're producing a lot of heat and they just, and they're distributing light in a way that needs reflectors. It's not directional um, and you can't dim them. And I mean, there's all these huge issues, but those were by far the best terpene producing lights. So we work to emulate that. And I know that the um, physio spec spectrum that you see in Fluence is really emulating that, but now we're going well beyond that, where I, I know that what we're doing at Proof will illustrate paths forward for targeted phytochemistry paired with particular cultivars and cultural practices and environmental strategies that become recipes for chemical varieties. That's, so photobiology, given that light, once everything else is in balance, I would argue is likely the most important variable, the quality of light and the intensity of light as well as the consistency of light in producing consistent chemovars. And so you really have, you get dragged into this discipline. If you're a careful cannabis producer and want to know how to do that, you really, you, you have to learn a lot about physics and light, it turns out. Um, so photobiology is the second discipline in the innovation lab. The third discipline is the one most true to your podcast, which is that we're passionate about organic crop production. Um, I've worked a lot with living soil. I've had the uh, blessing of working with some incredible people as I have worked with all sorts of different raised beds and shared root zones and hyper-complex rhizospheres that um, required no additional nutrient input beyond green mulch and um, some teas and have really worked with that. Um, I've had about four years' experience with living soils. Um, I I had some of the best cannabis I've ever produced in my life, unquestionably, come out of living soils. And I've also had some major crashes um, where I was, even with my best resources, and I'm calling on people that are brilliant and a lot of resources present, trying to do analytics and everything. I, I have literally uh, watched uh, an entire garden just crash and burn. Uh, that said, I, I know that there are, we are much more sophisticated, thanks to you and many other people who are on the frontier um, of educating and bringing popular education and around the dynamics of working with living soil. And yet still, I realized that proof I needed a kind of a, a modified approach that is unfortunately currently producing a bit of effluent in that we are not reusing our media. We are custom mixing all of our own organic inputs and we do some very scientific process to organize our organic crop production in a way that as close to really consistent, reliable results as possible, 
so that whenever I'm interacting with scientists who say, come on, if you're doing that kind of research, the only way you'll establish a meaningful baseline is to use mineral salt fertilizers. And I am adamantly opposed to using mineral salt fertilizers other than in very limited expressions for very particular kinds of research. But in general, for um, our product, it's just imperative to me that it be both clean, green, certified, and go way beyond what most people consider normal organics, and then go more into a precision ag modality. So how I've chosen to do that with this incredible team at Proof um, is really to test each individual input. We source most of the things that we can locally, and then we actually do analytics uh, through a lab in South Florida called QAL. That's quick turnaround, really affordable, big ag lab. Um, and so we test the inputs consistently. Then we custom mix it. And currently we're still hand mixing for our whole facility, although we're bringing on automation for the mixing over this year. Um, then we measure the substrate, the leachate, and those are two independent things that we're testing. And when we can, which is not always consistent right now, we measure the tissue as well. And we're looking at micro and macro um, availability of nutrients and we're able to, through all four of those analytical processes, which has not been cheap and has been a huge blessing to be able to finally get insight into, we are getting really, really good at understanding what particular chemovars need to flourish and learning that there is a broad range of diversity in the solutions we need to employ. Um, additionally, we have a fertigation system that took me seven months to design where we do apply some liquid nutrients um, that are, of course, all organic, but that allow for us to deal with some of the crop diversity issues where there's never a one-size-fits-all solution in our facility. We're really targeting um, four groups of cultivars. They're grouped together by length of maturing time, which is one huge variable. Compact and lanky plants is another, um, another axis by which to look at them and also looking at specific nutritional requirements outside of those things. Because if you obviously have a longer maturing plant versus a short maturing plant, that changes the schedule of, uh, of inputs. Um, but further, there are plants that we found that are clearly more acid loving and plants that are more base loving. Plants that need um, in our six part dolomite lime input um, you know, more of the medium grade, less of the fine grade, or th these sort of strategies that don't result on, you know, kind of the classic, put more CalMag in, this one just needs that, or but to like actually formulate in a targeted way from our initial media mix, the lion's share of what the plant will need, and to do that for all of these groups of plants in this complex facility where, you know, we could be between 14 and 22,000 plants. So being able to use analytics to validate the nutrition and availability of nutrition as the fundament, and then to work on enhancing that with biology through a variety of practices has been the sort of mainstay of our organic crop production program. And that is the third point of research. This is actually a really excellent um, in-house soil scientist who's on our team named Meg Hausman, who's been doing that work. Um, the person who's actually leading R&D for me uh, for the Innovation Lab is an amazing plant scientist named, um, excuse me, Kylie Mendonca. And so we've got some increasing uh, scientific prowess 
working together um, along with Lee Nye, our grower, and Todd Saucy, our operating director. But what's been incredible is having this facility that can essentially facilitate all three kinds of research that I've just described at scale as we are a commercial producer. And that as I've brought my own plants into the facility, which are things that I've been working on hybridizing based on analytical results and I've developed sort of cultural practices and environmental targets for over the last decade, we are seeing amazing results, Todd, some of which I just texted you earlier today because we just, I was happy to see the beginning of 2019, a review of the best smoke in Oregon of 2018. And I happened to see a, a, two of the five reviews about new chemovars that we've produced, one of which is a type two plant, which I believe people should be ready for the fact that type twos are going to be far more desirable in coming years. And I think type ones, you know, currently you see high THC plants uh, receiving the most attention in the commercial market, but type two plants are unbelievably versatile and that you can produce a huge range of um, sort of ratios of THC and CBD as the um, engine of this plant, but then bring in really novel chemical varieties by crashing type ones into type threes and so forth, because type threes and twos are vastly less likely to be bottlenecked right now in the way that type ones are. You know, there's a notion that when you're selecting plants for hybridization in a population of less than 200, you're going to create a genetic bottleneck that essentially is losing a huge amount of traits that are very important if we're seeking to adapt to changing times or make these new vigorous, you know, early maturing, pathogen-resistant, exciting chemovars. Um, but I know that type twos um, actually have been winning cups secretly. Like there's a story that Ethan Russo told me recently about the rainbow gummies that won in a type one category, a high THC category in the Emerald Cup was by far the most desired cultivar. And it was a terpinaline dominant type two, which is rare because most type twos and type threes are myrcene dominant. Um, so this is a less relaxing sedative form of medicine. And um, similarly, Astral Works has become a real people's choice in Oregon. It's been written up as the best CBD product and Leafly and so forth. And uh, but really, Astroworks is a terpinaline dominant anthocyanin flush, like deep, deep purple, brilliant flower that's just, it smells like nothing I've smelled before. It's in that, that hazy terpinaline, just profuse brightness. And then it's also an unbelievably vigorous, uh, heavy yielding, early maturing plant. It's got an array of other compounds like a minor cannabidiol varin or CBDV feature and um, a lot of terpene diversity and intensity. It's coming in very high oil, um, over 3% oil. Um, so in any case, these are things that are starting to be accepted in a market that otherwise is driven, uh, to my horror, entirely by THC percentage. If you look at BDS analytical data, which is the best uh, market-based analytical perspective on what products are selling in Oregon, California, Washington, et cetera, um, you really see in Oregon, people are buying and paying more for high THC cannabis. But the problem with this is that, you know, in the biosynthase of these cannabinoids and terpenoids, you actually have a shared pathway between 
the path that produces cannabinoids in the plant from glucose and the path that produces terpenoids. And this is the geranopyrophosphate, um, which you're going to have limited resources to make all these drugs. You're choosing, do we send all of those resources to this one note, you know, that we can make synthetically or that looks like Marinol or just these huge THC products, or you do diversify and start sending more of that energy towards terpenoid production and more polychemical perspectives, because one day soon, we're not just going to be talking about terpenes and cannabinoids. We're going to be talking about aldehydes, esters, ketones, flavonoids, and all of the other important therapeutic agents that this plant is so willing to produce. So the bottom line is I'm excited to see some consumer awareness growing around the fact that it's very likely you will have more pleasure and much better effects from the next-gen type 2 plants coming online after the amazing work of people like uh, Lawrence Ringo of Soham and Jamie from Resin and um, you know, people who have really uh, changed the world by bringing type 3s back and type 2s back. But I expect in the main retail sector, as people start to get more sophisticated, type 2s are going to play a much bigger role because they're just very desirable. But we're seeing, in addition to really exciting type 2s like Astroworks, which is, by the way, a hybrid they produced from a tangerine haze male that was unbelievably vigorous and imparted terpinaline and uh, vigor and anthocyanin to anything that was using that in a hybrid with um, and worked with Lawrence Ringo's Harley Sue, which was the earliest maturing, heaviest yielding, most desirable type 3 flower I personally found after auditioning something like 25 varieties in a, in a year and a half um, and just is something that's worked really well for patients. The particular variety I had clearly had the CBDV feature, um, working with seizure disorder patients. The inclusion of CBDV clearly uh, anecdotally increased the odds of efficacy and success in uh, working to suppress the frequency of seizures. So um, that plant is, I just think, a legendary plant. But then being able to uh, create this hybrid was an ex this was like exactly the outcome I was looking for. I found a bridge between those worlds and have a type two that is not myrcene dominant and that is just um, amazingly useful. But we're also seeing just in terpene production in the type ones, huge concentrations of terpenes. One of the problems with measuring terpenes is that we have a huge amount of interlab variability. And in Oregon, we have a program called ORLAP which is meant to govern the labs and ensure consistency in the approach and process that they're using. Um, going back to Pat Marshall, one of the amazing things that he did was resolved to use a method, 8270, which is the, um, um, it's a method that's been used by the EPA for measuring organic solvents for more than 40 years. And it's a very mature method with lots of, lots of redundancy and quality control built into it. Um, so he used a great method. These are the three things I think are important when you're looking at a lab. What is the level of experience and the credibility of the practitioner? Number one. Number two, what method are they using? Number three, what equipment are they using? And I think when you get sophisticated at looking at those three variables, you find that actually even in the regulated economy, there are a lot of labs that I do not consider to be passing muster. But um, Pat was special in that he had a great method, was unbelievably experienced. He was mainly focused on GC at the time, which is why we got such great terpene data. 
The bottom line is the range of what terpenes are being reported, it varies widely, but I'm seeing anywhere between you know, an average sample in the market or in the cultivation classic data that is produced uh, with 160 entries from some of the most skilled producers in Oregon, um, an average of like maybe one, one and a half percent oil. I consider 2% and up to be high oil. I consider the cultivars coming out of proof to be among the highest I've personally seen in the market using Cascadia Analytics as our baseline, who have demonstrated a pretty visionary approach to being market leaders and now both in California as well as in Oregon, providing a pretty unique approach to QC for producers. But I've not seen anything over 5%. Um, I am seeing in our varieties, um, uh, about a third of our current varieties that are new ones that I've bred um, in the 4 to 5% range. So hitting as high oil as I've seen, and these are plants when you harvest them, literally with like plastic gloves, you just see oil all over your hands. They're just, it's unbelievable. Um, and I, I find that really desirable and the effects are really quite strong. But we think about high THC um, in a way, actually, for anybody who was at the Emerald Cup this year or who wasn't there, you should go online and look at Dr. Mark Lewis's talk and he just did a brilliant, simple sort of expression of what's happened in the industry with chemovars. And we see that over the years, we have been more successful at producing higher levels of THC. That was not just through breeding, by the way. That was through light intensity and production environments. They were able to evoke that because I've been able to evoke very high THC from inbred lines or land-race cultivars that were clearly not um, not as intensively hybridized. And just by adding really intense light, I was seeing lots of THC and very little other compounds. But as that's happened, we've seen consumers have increasingly negative effects. And so we know that we're really good at serving this core super user market, which is what the existing product mix is kind of dominated by. But being able to expand into this utility where we're more effective at serving, say, more women than men, because right now, if you look at the BDS market data, we're actually losing women. As the regulated market is growing, we're serving less women than we were before. That's a really big issue if you look at the fact that everybody stands to benefit who has an endocannabinoid system um, from using cannabis products that are well-formulated and balanced and interesting in their profiles. But for some reason, our product mix is driving women away. We're going to be more effective in serving aging boomers and this kind of end-of-life population and all of these other populations, when we cease to only have this kind of high THC metric, um, but there are many ways to ameliorate the negative effects of the psychoactivity of THC, which, you know, I love THC and I'm, I'm a happy type one consumer. I really love type twos and threes as well, but I've, I've always consumed type ones, but I, I, I'm really concerned that if we don't produce um, more terpenes, which is a great strategy to change um, and affect the expression of the THC for the patients or more cannabidiol-rich cultivars or more minor cannabinoid-featured cultivars, then we're simply not making the right products that the world needs. The world needs a diverse array of products, and that's a really important theme that I see going forward, both at Proof and for the industry on the whole. Um, so, gosh, Ted, I just talked at you for a long time. I, I hope that... That was reasonably well organized because 
I, I don't think you've been able to get it word in edgewise. I apologize, my friend. <laughs> no, I have so many questions for you, but I know you're also out of time. So I wanted to propose this. What about um, if I saved my questions and maybe had you back on another time, but also opened it up to listeners to ask some questions? Because you, I mean, we you touched on so many really important topics, uh, ranging from anything from terroir and chemotype expression. Um, I'd love to find out, you know, what generalizations can you make based on you know, the type of lighting or uh, nutrients or methodology around the uh, around growing that you might be able to make for uh, growers. Um, how this change from high mercine plants um, over time is, has has affected patients or, or people who are using it for medical purposes. Um, I wrote down what chemotype expressions are are most beneficial for for different. Uh, different uses. There's just so many questions I have for you. Oh, and uh, like how stress response uh, may affect chemotypic expression as well as one that I think that just is a fascinating topic. So uh, I want to save these questions. Would it be okay to have you back on another time when you have more time and we could, we could just do a little quick short answer Q and a. I would be honored, my friend. I would love to be on um, in the near future when it works for both of us and yeah, have it be more, um, and uh, have to give you an opportunity to respond to your questions and anybody else's. But and all of those questions you just mentioned are are really important, and there are a lot of thoughts. Um, so yes, and it's a joy to have time with you today. And I know you have a lot of other exciting content coming, but I'm looking forward to chiming in in the future as soon as you're ready. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jeremy. Uh, great to talk to you. And I look forward to uh, coming down and actually checking out Proof. It's It's been on my list. And after hearing more about it, I really can't wait to see it. Well, I can't wait to have you. And thanks for everything you do, Tad. Thanks for this podcast. Thanks for the community that you bring together around it and for all of the inspiring visionary um, solutions that are proposed. Um, I certainly have gained a lot and really appreciate the content and I know that a lot of other people do too. So thanks for all the work you do. Again, that was Jeremy Plum, Director of Production Science at Proof Cultivar. I posted a ton of links and information relating to this podcast right on the podcast page at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on the podcast menu on the top of the home screen. And please reach out with questions either on our Instagram page at Kiss Organics or through our website contact page. Thanks for listening.